0: Hello, my name is Rocco Strangio. I'm the host of the Law, AI and Money podcast. I bring on attorneys, engineers, and entrepreneurs to unravel the world of AI and to discuss how it will affect the legal profession. Today, I'm joined with Christian Ayala, a software engineer based in Dallas, Texas. Christian has a master's in computer science. He's a professor of robotics, database design, and algorithm engineering. And currently, he works as a lead software engineer here at Milestone. In our conversation, Christian and I talk through the inception and progression of AI. We talk about the mechanics of deep and machine learning, and we talk about the potential concerns and applications of this new technology for the fields of law and medicine. Thank you for joining our conversation. Hey, Christian, how you doing?
1: Doing well, how you doing?
0: Doing good, doing good. So, Christian, there's so much buzz around AI. Um, It's developing rapidly, and with the rate that it's developing at, it's tough to be an expert. And so that's why we talk through it. That's why we have these discussions. Um, Many people claim to be an expert already, and they're not. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the sad reality, but based on your background, based on your expertise – I trust your opinion. I trust your expertise. And, you know, I chose you because I knew you would be highly beneficial, not for this podcast alone, but for everybody listening and their connections that they have. And yeah, so brilliant. I want to thank you for coming on. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. And, you know, hope, hopefully we have a great conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the invite.
0: So, Christian, I wanted to first begin with. I want to ask you, where does AI have its inception?
1: Yeah, so AI as as a concept, as a term, came about in the mid-50s. Um, Dartmouth, they had kind of a summer of artificial intelligence. It was actually yeah. kind of just an open forum to say, hey, we understand that there's this new thing called computers. We're starting to get an understanding of what they're able to do. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know... The, Historically, they were just focused on, give me some inputs, run some calculations, and here are some outputs. And in the mid-50s, it was starting to get the idea that, hey, this, you know, given sufficiently complex programs, it could resemble thought. It could resemble computers, could resemble intelligence. And so they had this kind of gathering of of thought leaders in that space, and and that's actually where the t- – the, the term was coined, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. in that, that mid-50s,
0: 1956 session. Wow. Um, you know, and I think from there, I think that's what led to the deep blue IBM um, system that beat Gary Kasparov. And I think that's what they intended to do in the 1950s. They intended to use this artificial intel- intelligence to play games, specifically chess.
1: Games were certainly a part of it. Games really lend themselves nicely to this space because um, there are very clear constraints to games, but they can be played in in, in a crazy number of ways, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the rules of chess, you can outline fairly easily. There's moves that you can make that are valid and invalid. Um, and then there's an end goal. And so... The, you know where the creativity comes in and where the intelligence comes in is how do you play the game yeah. uh, but having that kind of structure made it a really natural target uh, you know games in general as a really natural target to start with, yeah but even even in that first session, you know one of the one of the things that was included was um proofs, so mathematical proofs. Early computers were all about, you know, simulations, physics, mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was kind of the first time that a machine was used to do a mathematical proof, which is kind yeah. of a completely different beast altogether. And it turned out to actually be very effective.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess you could say the same thing for the Internet, Christian. Um, the, cr- the Internet was invented long before we started using it commercially. Mm-hmm do you know roughly when we started to implement AI commercially for the general public? Cause I believe probably a lot of people are underestimating when that was implemented. They maybe think it's a new technology when in fact it's been here since you might have the answer.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, commercially available that starts to come through towards the mid eighties into the nineties, you know, the idea of artificial intelligence was started in the 50s, but lack of computing power at the time just really prevented it from becoming mainstream. Um, but the idea never went away. Um, it was researched heavily in universities but then around the 80's and the 90s after you know Moore's Law really kind of pushed computing power um, and companies were able to fulfill Moore's law, um, that's when it really started opening up. Um, You know, in the late 80s, that's when you actually start to get concepts for the first self-driving cars. Mid-90s, you were able to do, uh, or I think the company was called Dragon, and they released the first, you know, speech-to-text natural language processing engine. Um, And you actually mentioned, you know, uh, Deep Blue, that was 1997. So
0: this is like the new technology that we're talking about now that we think is so... Um, disruptive but I I did not know it's been here for that long
1: to be the honest. roots of it and the kind of the mathematic principles of it have been around for a long time um, but now, nowadays it's again, we've managed to increase compute power and we're just able to apply them at a scale that was just not feasible even 20-30 years ago
0: Wow Wow <laughs> That's really interesting, Christian and <sighs> You know, as I said before, a lot of people claim they know about this space when, in fact, maybe they don't know as much as they think. Um, a lot of people confuse these terms, AI, machine learning, deep learning. And now the new one that's coming about is AGI, artificial general intelligence. Mm-hmm. Could you kind of compartmentalize those Um, sort of define each one and like talk about how they interact or whether they're mutually exclusive.
1: Yeah. The the classification of these things can get a little weird. It kind of Mm -hmm. depends on your perspective of everything. But my understanding of this is artificial intelligence is your most general term. That is, as the name kind of implies, intelligence coming from a non-human source. And so mm-hmm. that could be kind of anything. I mean, even basic programs you can deem as having a certain level of intelligence. They're just making predetermined decisions and following those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, that that really just branches out to really anything. Um, but Deep Blue, for example, that's that's kind of an example of artificial intelligence. the The constraints and the rules are programmed in. And at every after the after their opponent makes a move, it's looking at the state of the board and saying, "What are my possibilities? What is my optimal choice?" It's using this kind of heuristics to then determine what it should do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's artificial intelligence.
0: You using this technology to replicate human intelligence, creative thinking, new scenarios. We could kind of bubble it into that.
1: Yeah. And yeah, right. so, like in the example of Deep Blue, it's it's pretty well scoped, right? It's intelligence in this kind of one very specific thing. Um, as soon as you break out of, like, if you were to set up an invalid chessboard, it's not going to know what to do because it's just it's it's not made for that.
0: Well, it might try, and that kind of goes into hallucinations. There you go. But we can, we'll talk about that later.
1: We'll get there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's a that's AI in general. It's a machine making decisions that appear to be intelligent. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you have machine learning. um, And that's where a machine is actually using past data and being able to kind of evolve that data to then inform future predictions. Um, So a common example of that is like music or TV show suggestions, right? Behind the scenes, ahead of time, Netflix or Spotify, they're doing categorization of music. They're doing, you know, they're lumping music into genres or tempo or whatever they're interested in. Right.
2: Yeah. And
1: so they have this model that, OK, if you play a certain song, chances are you want to hear more in the style of that song. Some of that can be just driven by, you know, artists tagging metadata. But they could even derive this from the beats of the music itself or the rhythms or whatever. Um, and so you use Spotify. Yep. You're generating new data. You're generating listening data. Spotify will then feed that into their model, make mm. suggestions based on that. And so that kind of regular usage and learning. The more data we doing. have, the better. Uh-huh. It gets better and better over time. Gosh, gotcha. Then you get into deep learning, and that's a further subset of machine learning, and that is that you're using a neural net to, to accomplish something. Um, that's where you start getting into, like, chat GPT or even uh, image detection, shape recognition. Um, that all uses deep learning. So AI is your, your umbrella term. Machine learning is a subset of that. Deep learning is a subset further of that.
0: And what would be a good example? I know everybody talks about number recognition. And so deep learning kind of tries to replicate the brain, the human brain and its neural networks. Mm -hmm. Um, There's connections, there's neurons, and they light up. And there's layers that they can implement. And so for a number recognition system, the first layer might be a long straight line. And for numbers like three, zero, you know, that'll cut them off. But then you still have four, you still have two at the bottom. And so that's how I've come to understand deep learning and how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, so we always talk about biases. Can you explain what
1: biases are as it relates to deep learning? Biases in terms of? in terms of neuron or biases in the data set in the data set, yeah, yeah, so by... so no
0: no, no. actually in the neuron, sorry christian, and we'll we'll get to that later on.
1: in the neuron, yeah, yes okay, well, so you you're you're you definitely have the right mental model of how these uh neuron systems work, these neural nets, um they are organized in layers, and mm-hmm. each layer will feed into the next one sometimes. The entirety of one layer will feed into a bunch of neurons in the second layer, and so on and so forth. Or sometimes only certain segments of a layer will feed into the next one. Um, Each of those inputs, from one layer to another, is given weights. And um, those weights are then adjusted to make the system respond in a certain way. So let's let's take the example of, hey, let's recognize some handwritten numbers. Um, if you have a data set with a bunch of examples of handwritten numbers in different styles, maybe people have different handwriting, straight, cursive, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you can then feed that. Each of them are tagged as, Hey, this is an eight. And so what we want is that the machine learns that this is what an eight looks like. What it'll do is it'll run that image through this model and get an output. The machine predicts this certain thing. If it's right, great, it might tweak some things. If it's wrong, it's going to back-propagate and go back through the system and actually adjust the weights and the biases of each neuron. So a bias just kind of further tweaks the outputs based on a mathematical equation of the weights that are coming in. So you have input, it runs through the system, is it right? If it's wrong, let's go back and adjust the weights. You do it again, you go forward and back, forward and back. And that's just one number. And then you can apply this to tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands, to millions of examples. You do this over and over and over. Your weights keep shifting, keep changing. But the ultimate goal that it becomes increasingly accurate. And and, eventually you do this enough, it settles. The weights settle. The weights start to not change very much. I know what a seven looks like no matter how you write it.
0: Wow. And so that's how inherently it gets better and smarter. Mm-hmm. That's why the captures are getting so
1: increasingly difficult, right? Is that the increasing. same system? Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they, they kind of run in the same system. Um, when you have this kind of super highly connected system, Um the number of weights and biases that you have to keep track of really grow tremendously fast even even neural nets from a few decades ago would have thousands upon thousands even millions of inputs modern ones um, will have in the hundreds of billions of weights uh, in order to make a model and so if you do that you know forward propagation back propagation across hundreds of billions of weights, well, that's why we need so much computing power and that's why it's only now becoming feasible to do this.
0: Wow. Wow. That's so interesting. And we could talk about quantum computing's influence over that um, specific sect, but we got to move on to the next thing that I want to talk about, and we alluded to it before, the biases. Mm -hmm. Um, And biases as in bad data. So I wanted to ask you, ChatGBT is very influential. Mm-hmm. Um, it's changing our lives, and it's still at its you know, inception point where it's still novel, and it has a lot of potential to grow. But in your opinion, do these technologies require human oversight? What are some of the pros and cons, and what is the biases that we were referring to before in bad data, and why is that an issue?
1: Yeah. So I, I do believe there has to be some kind of, whether you call it oversight or simply nudging in a certain direction, And it, it goes back to how complex these systems are. When you have hundreds of billions of weights feeding into a system, well, no one person or even a team of people can really understand what exactly it's doing. Um, ChatGPT is kind of building... A, a mental model and building relationships across things, but it's doing it in a very numerical, mathematical sense. So it's you can represent words, characters, sentences as mathematical vectors. Mm-hmm. When you do that transform, it then becomes very abstract to humans, to people. Machines can reason in that space; they're just numbers. It's it's math. But if you were presented with a you know mathematical vector, you wouldn't really know what it means Um, spread that across hundreds of billions of weight parameters. and, And suddenly it becomes a very much a black box. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting tidbit. Number one is we don't, we don't in detail know exactly the decisions that the machine is doing in order to determine what these relationships are. Problem number two is what we feed it is what it's going to learn. It's like teaching a child a bad habit, right?
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it's just going to kind of mirror or reflect the things that are being fed to it. sometimes that's intentional, sometimes that's unintentional. Um, but the child is going to learn based on its surroundings. well, same thing with a, with these large language models, they're learning based on data that we give it um. <laughs> There have been interesting papers written about the relationship between words as they exist in human language um, and the biases in which, like, you know, centuries of history of documentation can then surface in these yep. mathematical models. There was an example where the mathematical relationship between man and woman is very similar to the mathematical relationship between king and queen. And that kind of makes sense. They're, they're titles of nobility. Yep. And then it was observed in that same paper that the, kind of a similar relationship exists between doctor and nurse. And that's because of historical reasons, doctors were typically male and nurses were typically female.
2: Yep.
1: And so that's a bias that was discovered because the data that was given into the system, had it, it exhibited that bias. So these are often a reflection of um, our human biases. Wow. So those two things put together, we don't entirely know how it works. We understand kind of the, the mathemat- mathematical logic, but the decisions it's actually making is a, is fairly obtuse. And the fact that our data is inherently biased, um, we have yeah. to be able to nudge it in a certain way. We have to be able to then provide additional context that says that we need to adjust this.
0: I agree. I. <laughs> If you were to ask an AI system to draw a CEO, oftentimes it'll give you a picture of an older white male, and that's sort of what you're getting at mm-hmm. with these biases. Um
1: Yeah. There was a there was even there was even a recent article I read that it talked about researchers looking into um, you know, if you ask even just a generic I want a, a a man on the street wearing a hoodie. The image that it generates is often cases one we would deem very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's, it's actually because of the data that it was trained on. Most often, if you were to, to post things on social media, where well, you're going to post the things that are most flattering to you. Of course. Spread that across the population, and suddenly you have this distorted view of what an average person might look like. So even, even just something as innocuous as, you know, attractiveness level, for example, yeah. um, it shows up yeah. unintentionally. It shows up.
0: Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's something we have to look for obvious for obvious reasons. Um, Christian, tying back this podcast to the field of law, how do you foresee this technology being used for research? For trials, I know we work in the mass tort space, so (laughs) for bellwethers, for the field of law as a whole.
1: Yeah, so I think the field of law has a really special advantage compared to other fields, and that is the sheer amount of documentation, Um, court transcripts, descriptions of evidence, um, outcomes, anything like that that, you know, you have access to very well structured, documented information that can all be fed into a model. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the legal space is in a really strong position to be able to use this. As to how it's going to be used, I mean that the possibilities are endless. I mean, you can. I can think of a case where um, I understand. I, I by no means am a lawyer, but I understand that there is a very uh, clear legal language that you would use in a court of law. Yep. Let's say you're a new lawyer, you're still learning the legal language and how to speak appropriately in a court, or you, but you, you have done the research, you've done your due diligence, and now you need to present this case. Well, theoretically, you could share all this information into a model and actually have it convert your argument into a more structured legal argument based on all these past court transcripts. Um, So you get a leg up in terms of clarity.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Christian, on top of that, on top of just expediting the documentation, um, production, so, you know, drafting briefs, motions, I think another thing that you were pointing out too is that the legal field has so much demand. Dockets are clogged. There's, there's plenty of work to go around. And so what I think I foresee AI being used in trials, expediting those trials, specifically mass torts. Mm-hmm. So in mass torts, oftentimes as a sample, there'll be, be- bellwether cases to, to sort of lead a mass tort and gauge how much the average settlement should be. So if it's 16 cases, if it's 30 cases, they'll take many years to complete. Mm -hmm. And I can foresee after having talked with some of these mass tort attorneys that this technology could be used to expedite those trials where you could have a hundred bellwethers, you know, many Mm -hmm. more than we could have ever imagined. And you could do them in a matter of days. And so that's just a small tidbit into what this technology can do for the field of law. I know everybody talks about, um, job, the job market as a whole being disrupted Mm -hmm. people losing their jobs, but it's interesting. I don't think anybody has the answer yet. That's a very delicate, you know, public policy comes into play. Politics comes into play. And so we don't know yet, but, from our conversations, this technology doesn't have to make all these jobs obsolete. They can make them even better.
1: That's, that's kind of what I envision. It's, it's, these things are tools. You can mm-hmm. use the tool incorrectly. Um, you can use it to fabricate things and make it sound convincing. Or you can use it responsibly, effectively, um, and have it automate some of the work for you. It, yeah. These these models are really good at finding relationships across things. So in the mass tort world, where you have many, many similar cases with some slight variations, these models are really good at finding the relationships across these cases. Yes. And that, that pointing out these relationships um, can, can be a really powerful tool to a lawyer. That's not doing the lawyer's job that's simply enabling them to be able to do more of these things. So it's kind of like what you said, You perhaps now you can do 20 cases simultaneously. Well, if you have a tool like this that is expediting some of this work, it's finding these relationships, it's generating some of the format and structure of how to present the arguments, but you're the one presenting the argument. Now, suddenly, the lawyer is more focused on the core of yeah. trial and less on the details of minutia, and they're able to take on more cases. So I don't think there's going to be necessarily a loss of jobs. It's just going to be another tool in the arsenal.
0: Yeah. You had touched on this briefly just now. Um, there is the concern that, you know, there's bad lawyering. Um, there's plagiarism, there's sloppy work. Everybody knows of the case of the lawyer who used ChatGPT. There was a hallucination in the system, and um, the system made up cases. That attorney was facing sanctions. This is an issue. Um, but there's already regulations in place. People are calling for regulations, but there's already regulations in place inherently in the legal world through the ethical rules. So the ethical rules require us to zealously advocate for our clients. Mm -hmm. They require us to charge a reasonable fee for services. Do you think these systems comply with those rules? Do you think using an AI system is zealous Mm -hmm. advocation? Do you think, you know, if this work is becoming expedited, should we be charging the same fees as we were before? What's your opinion on that?
2: Yeah. That's an interesting question. I, I don't think this doesn't, this doesn't necessarily,
1: uh, how to say this, Um, this does not change the, the zealous support of a client. As I've kind of mentioned, this is, this is simply another tool in the tool belt. Now, if that means that you are spending less time on it, but it's more effective time or more directed time, then I, that doesn't decrease the value of the work that you're doing at all. Um, I agree. You know, so what, it, it can end up taking less time to do something. And so your net amount, if you're, let's say you're charging by the hour, yeah, it goes down, but the value of each hour does, you know, you don't have to start charging less simply because you're using this tool. Um, and if anything, you're now able to take on more cases. So you end up in a net positive where each case, maybe you're spending less time, but you have a greater net total of cases. Well, now suddenly you're in the the positive Christian, to the the core of the question of, you know, does it, um, does it lower the value? No, absolutely not.
0: No, I, I agree, Christian. And I, the big concern that had, had, um, occurred with those attorneys that submitted those cases was a hallucination. Yeah. But there's already technology that's coming up that's used to resolve that issue. And it's called retrieval augmented generation. I don't know if you know anything about that, but it basically, if you do, I would love for you to explain how it works.
1: Yeah. So it what that is, is it, it so it, let's say you were to, to do a query, right? you're looking for some data. Um, That query in and of itself can be viewed in isolation and it'll generate some output. Um, But retrieval augmented generation is, okay, before we send that query over to um, a large language model, let's also enhance it with some known results. And so this is actually kind of the model that like Bing AI is starting to use in its search engine. So you can, you can make it a much more conversational search engine, and it'll present results and facts. Um, and part of what it's doing is if you type in a query, it's going to do a, a standard web search first, take those results, you know, let's say Wikipedia articles. It will take those results and feed it alongside your query, and that context can be used to then direct um, the output. And then, so, you know, if, if they're used in some way, then to your point, kind of like a worksite bibliography, it's shown like it, this information was taken from this website.
0: Exactly. I, I think that's, that's a big concern in the field of law because we rely on sites, we rely on cases to back what, you know, we're documenting. But I think that's pivotal. Something that, a technology that basically grounds this um, AI system. Um, is huge for all of us. And I don't think yeah. a lot of attorneys are aware of this new technology yet. Mm-mm. But it's out there.
1: It is. And it, it actually is just an enhancement of of kind of normal conversation. Part of the hallucination and how you're able to do that is you're kind of guiding this chatbot to to answer things in a certain way and you can structure your questions for it to respond in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Well, much in that same way, if you view pages and documents and facts as other parts of a conversation well now suddenly the the system is able to answer a lot more intelligently
0: yeah so christian this podcast explores the intersection of ai and the field of law Mm -hmm. but what are some of the use cases for ai that you envision for other fields where it could be medicine it could be you know our social lives Mm -hmm. um the quality of life as a whole what are some of the use cases that you think will be pivotal for our lives using AI?
1: Yeah, quality of life is kind of an interesting one. That's what, that's what is getting people on board in the first place. It's the, it's the flashy tools that can help automate a, a quote-unquote average person's day-to-day. Mm-hmm. You have to make a presentation Well, you can, you can do it yourself manually or you can provide all the contents and have an AI generate the design for you. Um, so there's certain little quality of life things that could be done across the board. Um, to me, one of the most interesting ones, and it's a little bit abstract to me, but um, it's around medicine and it's around using generative, generative AI to develop new drugs. Um, there was a recent uh, recent paper that was published. I think it was in July actually, um, and it talked about using generative AI to predict protein structures. Um, So it would take kind of these little building blocks of molecules to then build proteins that match certain molecules. These can be like, you know, we want to target certain kinds of cells, certain kinds of bacteria, what have you. Mm -hmm. We want to build proteins to latch onto that. Yeah. Well, rather than just doing kind of random protein folding, well, let's actually use generative AI to more intelligently guess how this should work, um, mm-hmm. and it's actually been used to good effect so far. Uh, yeah, so I find that to be really interesting. Of using a this, good AI example be- of
0: that. A good example of that, Christian, is this oncology treatment, CAR T cell therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, they draw blood out of a patient's body, they separate out the T cells, they reengineer them to go target those malignancies or tumors in the case of cancer. Now they're exploring it for autoimmunes, which in the case the T cells would attack the rogue B cells. But they're using AI, like you said, to optimize those structures to see, you know, how many spike proteins the T cell should have, and that makes, you know, killing these healthy are not healthy cells, these bad cells more efficiently and and ensuring that we don't kill as many healthy cells as we can.
1: Right. But given the complexity and diversity of what these proteins could look like, that's much, much easier said than done. So tools like this that can help expedite that will just mean more rapid development of of vaccines, cures, what have you. Um, So that's what, to me, is super interesting and exciting is um, in the medical space and helping expedite the development of cures
0: me too me too Christian that stuff I went to law school, but medicine has always lit a flame in me. I feel mm-hmm. very passionately because i you know everybody's affected in one yeah. way or another, and it, it, that's that 's the quality of life that we 're talking about that would be improved uh, i was I just saw this on the news the other day. Where they mapped the human brain they have a brain interface now and a lady who is otherwise active cognitively she her mind was working just fine but her body her motor system was not reacting as it should Mm. um and so she couldn't talk she couldn't express her thoughts but an ai system obviously it's other technology implemented with ai it was able to map her brain and her um, neural connections, stimuli, what have it, to allow her to speak um, just by thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so transformative. And that's just one of many innovations that we'll, we'll see with this new technology.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what comes up. In the, yeah. even, even 10 years, yeah. so many things are going to just open up.
0: Yeah. Well, Christian, it's obvious to me that, there's, that this technology is going to change our lives. I think for the better, I think you share think that same well. opinion, um, but we have, to tread, we have to tread lightly for obvious reasons. Um, they're predicting that in the next five, 10 years, um, AGI will come to fruition artificial general intelligence, a system that can think on its own, you know, ask itself questions. Um mm-hmm. and people oftentimes say that AI is about as self aware as a paperclip. But with AGI it'll become just as sentient as we are. Um so we have to tread lightly. <laughs> Who knows what's gonna happen in these next five to ten years but I greatly appreciate your expertise, your opinions. I value them very highly. Um, I think people like you are so important to this space. And so I just wanna thank you again for coming on.
1: Absolutely, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, all right, Christian. I'll talk right. to you and you know, wish you all the best.
2: Thanks Rocco, talk to you later.